0: One of my greatest fears growing up came from a story my parents and grandparents used to tell us. They warned us to stay away from the water after it got dark because that's when La Llorona came out looking for her children, and she might mistake one of us for one of hers and snatch us up and pull us down to a watery grave. La Llorona, Spanish for the weeping woman, cries for the children she drowned in a rage. She's cursed to wander the rivers and streams of her homeland in search of her children. I was petrified. We all were, my brother and my cousins and I. Many folklore traditions have water spirits or water demons that will drown their victims. These stories serve an obvious social function, to keep children, maybe drunks and other poor swimmers, away from dangerous waters. They're cautionary tales of a sort, and they work. If you ask a Hispanic kid from the Southwest if they played by the water at night when they were growing up, you'll likely get some variation of, oh, hell no, I was afraid of La Llorona. But what about those times when we completely ignore the cautions, whether they're folkloric or direct from the mouths of our own elders or peers. Are the cautions always necessary? Are they always good? Is night swimming really always a bad idea? And what new adventure or knowledge might await at the end of that road? That unpaved, unlit, deeply wooded road? Welcome to Southwest Gothic, I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and this week's tale is one I'm calling The Bride's Bleeding Heart. Let's get settled at our virtual kitchen table, and we'll explore cautionary tales, legends not so urban, and the art and craft of debunkery. You might even get a lesson in ghost-busting, not La Llorona, though. She will always and ever haunt the waterways and subconscious minds of the Southwest. She's one ghost who is unbustable. Some other time in some other episode, we'll immerse ourselves in the legend of La Llorona. For now, I want to point out that, beyond scaring kids away from swimming, ever, the backstory of the Llorona is a cautionary tale. That end part of the story where she drowns her babies and is cursed for it is the spooky bit because water demons are terrifying. Before that, though, her pre-vengeful spirit self made some other bad judgment calls. She shacked up with a dreamy rich guy who was far above her in social standing, and, believing that they were in love, she had a couple of kids with him. Later, when the time came for him to import a socially acceptable wife from Spain, or maybe just some place fancier than the rancho where he had found her, She fell into a fit of crazy, jealous rage and drowned their offspring. The regret set in, then came the curse and the haunting. A key aspect of that story, one that was brought ever more to the forefront with each telling as I moved into adolescence, was that this young woman went off with the rich and handsome stranger against all the cautions and good advice of her elders. She flouted them. She was willful, rebellious, and independent to a fault. The legend of La Llorona is a cautionary tale for impressionable young women. Listen to your mother, the story says. Don't be gullible. Don't be flattered just because some man tells you that you're pretty. Follow your instincts before your heart or your hormones. You probably won't end up committing infanticide, because that's extreme but at the very least you'll be rewarded with a broken heart. And a ruined reputation, because don't forget that this story started making the rounds in conservative Spanish colonial society. Cautionary tales about faithless and dangerous young men abound in folklore and myth and legend. Jason jilted Medea after she'd betrayed her family to be with him. The fecund Mr. Fox, learning of his lover's pregnancy, lured her out to the woods for the express purpose of murdering her. Bluebeard kept that secret gore room full of previous wife parts, but at least the cannibalistic robber bridegroom cleaned up after his meals. You get the idea. But for me, out of all of these gruesome tales, La Llorona is the most prominent. Maybe that's because I heard the story so young. Maybe because it was local and maybe because it's a story that grew up alongside me. My grandmother, who was a storyteller, died just before I turned 13. We were close. We shared a variety of conversations in that last year or two of her life. I was on the cusp of adolescence and she knew she was dying. We talked about La Llorona and we talked about willfulness and cultivating good judgment and learning to control your own passions. She warned me about charming men. She told me another story, an old local legend about the ghost of a young woman who had met a sad fate. She told me about the time her father, my great-grandfather, met that ghost. He had also told this story to his grandson, a child sitting on his knee. That child grew up to be my dad, and I've heard the story from him, too. Let's leave behind the tragically headstrong young ladies for a moment, and I'll tell you about a young man. Not one of the faithless ones, but a quiet, steady cowboy, a vaquero named Gregorio. In the early 20th century, Gregorio was making his living around Trinidad, Colorado. A century ago, the city of Trinidad still straddled the gap between modernity and the frontier. It originally grew out of a camp on the Santa Fe Trail, but by the turn of the century it boasted stone and brick buildings including an opera house and brick paved streets. A Carnegie Library had been opened there in 1904 but it was still the rural West, only a few decades past the Wild West days when Bat Masterson did a stint as the sheriff. The city is built against the Sangre de Cristo Mountains on the Purgatoire River. Yes, you heard that correctly. The Blood of Christ Mountains and the Purgatory River. The Purgatory and a dozen or so tributary streams flow out of the foothills to the west and dry plains stretch out to the east. Travelers going north to Denver or to Cheyenne or south to Santa Fe or El Paso stopped and stayed in Trinidad. The local economy ran largely on the surrounding ranches and mines and cattle and coal came into Trinidad to be shipped to points north and east, sometimes on the rails and sometimes over rough roads. That's what Gregorio was up to, driving cattle into Trinidad. Gregorio was from New Mexico, which was U.S. territory when he was born in 1888. As a young single man, he wandered and worked throughout the southwest and northern Mexico. Borders were more fluid then. Gregorio was a small man, only around five feet tall, but everyone looks bigger on horseback. He was young, but already had a reputation as cool-headed and fearless, a skilled rider and a crack shot. He drank occasionally, but never to drunkenness, and enjoyed playing cards. He carried an 1873 45 Colt on his hip, and rode around on a massive horse I'm told might have been called Grandote, which means something like Big Boy, so I'm going to run with that name. Gregorio was bilingual and biliterate in his native Spanish and in English. Depending on who's telling the story, Gregorio might have gone south to join Pancho Villa and his band of fighters during the Mexican Revolution, but made it back to the U.S. before General Pershing crossed the border. Either way, he was the sort of steady hand you'd want on your crew. In the second decade of the 20th century, Gregorio was flying under the radar, driving cattle from New Mexico over Raton Pass, and into Trinidad. One late spring evening, he was part of a crew bringing a herd into town. More accurately, they drove the cattle north and west slightly out of town to water them upstream at the Purgatory River. A rainstorm had been threatening since midday but hadn't broken, and the animals and the men were dry, dusty, and dirty with a week's worth of trail grime. Being several miles from town, there were some services set up at the trail's end, like the paymaster's cabin, and a makeshift cantina in a tent. Gregorio planned to ride down into Trinidad to treat himself to a room and a hot bath, but first he wanted to rest a little. From that camp at trail's end, the best route into town was not along the river, but through a wooded and winding little canyon carved out by a stream. It was lush and especially beautiful in the spring. The trail crisscrossed the stream, and its course ran through the flat of a few small huecos, or hollows. In Gregorio's time, nobody lived in the canyon except the cattle and goats who grazed there. It had been inhabited in the past, evidenced by the ruins of a once-fine adobe house in the largest hueco. The vaqueros preferred this trail. There were wider, easier trails, but they went back south and around, backtracking along the cattle trail. This was the better way into Trinidad. A few men who were anxious to beat the storm into town had pocketed their pay and headed right down the canyon. Others returned south if home was back over the New Mexico border. But Gregorio stayed at the camp a while. While the wind rustled the tent walls around them, the vaqueros enjoyed putting their backsides into seats that were neither saddles nor the hard ground. They laughed and joked and drank and played a little cards. Gregorio socialized longer than he had planned, and when he collected himself to ride down into Trinidad, the sun was nearly down. The sky was dark with clouds, and the rain still hadn't fallen. Gregorio's friends were concerned for him. They asked him not to ride out into the dark with the storm about to break. He assured them the rain wasn't a problem, that Grandote was steady and knew the way. The moon was full, and after the rain fell, the sky would be bright and clear. Then the other vaqueros raised the issue of the canyon itself. Gregorio wasn't from Trinidad, but they knew that he knew the canyon's reputation. Embrujado. Haunted. It was said that a dangerous, ghostly woman dwelt in the house in the canyon. Gregorio's friends reminded him that the ghostly woman in white was said to be vengeful and that no man should ride through the canyon alone at night but Gregorio only shrugged and readied his horse. He assured his friends that he wasn't worried about any ghost. Whether the canyon was haunted or not, it had been the scene of a tragedy, and that's a great recipe for a haunting, if you believe in such things. And if that event had produced a ghost, maybe she did have it out for men. It would have made sense. And so here is the story of how a young woman who puckered up for a kiss met with her death instead and how maybe that turned her into a ghost. We'll need a little bit of historical context. The 19th century was a rough time for the Spanish Southwest. It had been a part of the Spanish Empire in the Americas, the northernmost reaches of the Kingdom of Nueva España, New Spain. It's not like those first few centuries of Spanish rule were devoid of conflict, But in the 19th century, a series of events piled up to keep the region in chaos for decades. Mexico's declaration of independence from Spain and the ensuing war, the upheaval that came with independence, that whole bit with the Republic of Texas, the American war with Mexico and the subsequent annexation of most of what now makes up the southwestern states. Besides the usual suspects of bloodshed and war crimes, All this meant that land grants and other property rights were rescinded and redistributed, fortunes lost and gained and borders ignored, reestablished, redrawn, and then promptly ignored some more. Westward expansion from the United States further muddied the waters. That's a gross simplification. But just know that the formerly Spanish Southwest experienced an influx of American opportunists from the east and from the Mexican interior to the south some of these we'll call them real estate developers settled in the Purgatory Valley near Trinidad we'll call one of them Don Pablo his family came with him and that's how our tragically headstrong heroine arrives on the scene all those historical bits are fact but they frame a story that's more like an urban legend something like My cousin's roommate's ex-girlfriend fell for the wrong guy, only it was 150 years ago instead of last year. So there's a lot we don't really know about Don Pablo or his family. For example, we don't know their names. I chose Don Pablo because it sounds good. Storytelling efficiency requires a name for his daughter and I choose Leonora. It's an appropriate name to the time and place, say around number 12 or 13 on the top 20 baby girl names of the 1850s and 60s. I made up that last bit, I hope you caught that. But Leonora is a common enough name if you go digging through contemporary records. It's also my little shout out to Poe's lost love Lenore, but so far I haven't added any ravens to this story. Back to things we don't know. We don't know exactly where Don Pablo was from, He could have been from as close as Santa Fe, which is still nearly 200 miles away from Trinidad. Or he may have been from some city in the Mexican interior. Mexico City, Guadalajara, Guanajuato. The timing's wrong for him to have been a rich Spaniard, so we can cross out that possibility. He might have been a rich Tejano. We don't know the circumstances of why he left his previous home. There were opportunities up north, but something had to make it worth the risks. We can assume that Don Pablo was among the wealthiest of his neighbors, blessed in both material and social capital. He probably also made sure his wealth and status were conspicuous. The new money he was making was probably in cattle, maybe coal, maybe land speculation. Anyhow, there they were, Don Pablo and Leonora and whoever else made up their household, near the newish town of Trinidad. Don Pablo had land, herds, and was pleased that this move had been such a wise investment. He had built his family a lovely home close to town, or maybe right in town, but Don Pablo had another favorite spot among his land holdings. Most of the runoff streams to the west, the ones that carved out little canyons through the Sangre de Cristos, were seasonal. Up off the river bottoms, it was an arid place. Some streams, though, were permanent and there was an idyllic one that spread itself into a handful of little grassy huecos as it made its way toward the Purgatory Valley. One of these huecos, or hollows, was especially green and flat, dense with cottonwoods and willows. There was a wide, flat patch of higher ground against one canyon wall edged in with trees, a perfect spot to build a house. A game trail ran along the creek. It was a peaceful place, And Leonora loved it even more than her father did. Don Pablo promised her that someday, when she married, he would build her a house in that hueco as a wedding gift. But when would poor Leonora get to cash in on that promised wedding gift? Don Pablo's family socialized with other landed families. This was the frontier, after all, and decent people had to stick together to ensure that the social order held. There were so few of them. Being an adolescent, Leonora might have taken the social order for granted, or she may have resented it. There she was, at the edge of the civilized world, which was exciting, but the place was sparsely populated. In addition to the relative lack of amenities, this meant that Leonora encountered far fewer eligible bachelors than her older sisters had had to choose from in the family's previous, more urban life. Then there was the question of legitimacy. I don't mean legitimate birth, not necessarily, though that was part of it. Remember how Trinidad got its start? It was a hub on the mountain spur of the Santa Fe Trail. The men who passed along the trail were often doing quite well for themselves, as trappers, traders, couriers, guides, interpreters, and later, gold prospectors. As potential suitors for a young lady, financial stability wasn't near as much of an issue as identity, legitimacy. Who were these men? Who were their families? More precisely, how could you be sure that a man was who he said he was? If a trader told you he was from St. Louis, or New Orleans, or Santa Fe, maybe he was. And maybe he wasn't. Sometimes a trapper's scruffiness belied his net worth, and sometimes a well-dressed, well-spoken young man was penniless, or worse, fleeing a burden of crushing debt, possibly under an assumed name. It was also easy back then to hide a criminal past, or to leave behind a family by moving up the road a hundred miles. Without knowing a man's family, or the priest in the parish where he was raised, or any number of other things about his background, and lacking even the ability to verify his real name, frontier communities were often hesitant to allow their dealings with strangers and travelers to go beyond business. A good family would have been hesitant to allow a stranger to court one of their daughters. All those ancient folkloric cautions against the charming stranger may feel unnecessary and even xenophobic to our modern sensibilities. But in a world that predated the easy internet background search by at least a century and a half, a world where newspapers and mail were scanty and unreliable, taking an outsider at their word was a risky proposition. Enough prologue. You've already figured out the next thing I'm going to tell you. And that's, one day, a handsome, charming stranger rode into town. He was there as a businessman, and he got involved with Don Pablo. We'll call this suavecito Antonio. Because, hey, don't we all know a charming guy named Antonio? But I hope your buddy Antonio isn't a skeezy con man. Anyway, the Antonio of this story did some business with Don Pablo and things went well. And in the course of all this, he crossed paths with Leonora. Antonio was a charmer, and soon lonely, bored Leonora was head over heels in love with him. For his part, she was pretty enough, or interesting enough, or her family just plain rich enough, that he politely reciprocated. His interest appeared genuine, if suitably guarded and proper at first, but Leonora fell hard and fast. She was heartsick when her father responded with all the caution that she had scorned. Don Pablo may have trusted Antonio enough as a new business associate, but considering him as a match for his daughter was another matter. Leonora resented the unfairness of it all. While most versions of the story agree that she was headstrong, maybe even spoiled, some also portray her disappointment at being dragged to live at the fringes of the civilized world. Imagine her as the youngest daughter, The apple of her father's eye, sure, but also jealous of older sisters who had already made good marriages and were perhaps enjoying high society life in Mexico City while she languished on the frontier. Now, she had fallen in love and thought that if her father trusted Antonio enough to do business with him, wasn't that enough confidence to allow the man to court his daughter? If you fill in the blanks like that, it's easier to see how a prosperous, indulgent father could give in to an unhappy daughter's whims, even against his better judgment. Antonio must have made his case, and Don Pablo would have conferred with trusted friends. They would have advised against the marriage. Don Pablo's financial success was no secret. And what if the young man were only seducing the girl to get at her father's wealth? There were other ugly possibilities as well. Don Pablo liked Antonio. He was confident, charming, good with words, but he didn't really know anything about him. He seemed like a man without a past. That worried Don Pablo. What worried him more, though, was that Leonora would waste away with sorrow if he didn't allow the match. After all, this was still the 19th century. And we have it on good folkloric and fairy tale authority that wasting away from heartbreak and disappointment was a risk to be avoided. I'm joking. A little. Remember that in this time and place, and especially social class, young women were believed to have delicate constitutions. Belief can be powerful. Eventually, Don Pablo gave his blessing, and Leonora and Antonio were engaged. The community buzzed with disapproving whispers and circulated endless theories about Antonio's past. Don Pablo ignored both the rumors and his gut feelings and sent builders into the quiet green hueco in the foothills to construct the promised house for his daughter and her beloved. He quietly assembled a dowry and put it in a small wooden chest. There were enough gold coins to make a satisfying heavy clunk instead of a tinny rattle. Preparations were made for the wedding mass and the wedding feast And once the house was finished, the day was set. Don Pablo did his best to focus his thoughts on his daughter's happiness. In one version of the story, Don Pablo's oldest daughter made an arduous journey to attend her kid sister's wedding, largely because she'd been having foreboding dreams and was desperate to tell Leonora about them. Leonora, of course, dismissed her sister as jealous and petty and ignored her dreams of a tragic end to the marriage. Just an aside, I love how this plot device demonstrates Leonora's stubbornness. I also really want to call the older sister Cassandra, so I will. The day arrived, they were wed, and there was feasting and dancing. Don Pablo's family and friends were in attendance, though Antonio's only guests were the business associates he and Don Pablo had in common. Don Pablo and Cassandra choked back their tears, hoping the other guests would assume their emotions were something like joy but there was a muffled quality to the celebration. Polite smiles and well wishes were pushed past lingering doubts about the groom. Antonio seemed content, and Leonora was giddy with pleasure. Late in the celebration, Don Pablo toasted the couple and presented them with the wooden chest full of gold, Leonora's dowry. There was ooing and aahing from the guests, but also murmuring this box raised the specter of the groom's possible motive of greed. He accepted it graciously enough, and Leonora was simply bursting with joy. A few more kind words were said, and then family and a few friends accompanied the bride and groom to the edge of the hollow where their other gift awaited them. They would spend their first night together in the promised house on the loveliest spot in all her father's holdings. Both Don Pablo and his other daughter, Cassandra, struggled to sleep that night. In the morning, the servants loaded a wagon with the remaining wedding gifts for father and sister to deliver to the couple in their new home. Politeness dictated that they arrive later in the morning, but they left out as early as they could justify. It was an unsettled ride, neither wanting to give voice to their apprehensions. The trail up the canyon was winding, and they only caught sight of the pristine whitewashed house as they came around a bend and into the hueco itself. Something was amiss. The front door of the house stood wide open, and there was a heaviness in the air. Cassandra ran for the door, calling Leonora's name, but there was no response. She needn't have expected one. Leonora's body lay in a pool of her own blood on the floor. She had been stabbed in the chest, legend says right through the heart. She still wore her wedding gown, and her eyes were wide with the shock of betrayal. Antonio was gone, along with both horses and the chest of gold. The silver candlesticks were gone from the table. The silver necklace had been removed from Leonora's throat and the rings from her fingers. Though most people had doubted Antonio, nobody wanted to believe he had done this. Every alternate explanation fell apart. Thieves were suggested. Perhaps thieves had surprised the couple, and though they killed Leonora, perhaps Antonio had been able to get away and go for help. But no. Antonio's tracks out of the canyon showed he'd never gone to town, never alerted a soul of his wife's fate. The only thief in the story was Antonio. They followed him, but the trail went cold. He was never seen or heard from again. The worst fears of Leonora's family and community were confirmed. Even those who looked for the best couldn't sidestep the question of greed. Even if Antonio had originally intended a long con, seducing Leonora to insinuate himself into the family fortunes over time, he had at some point decided to kill her instead. Perhaps the unexpected gift of so much gold had changed his plans and he saw a way to have his fortune without settling down for it. And even if Antonio had been who he said he was, an orphan from some far city, he wasn't what he said he was, an honest businessman who had fallen in love with the daughter of an associate. The community's fear of outsiders was vindicated, and Leonora had paid a high price to confirm it. Don Pablo buried his daughter in the yard of the house he'd built for her. It was still a beautiful place, but after the tragedy, a pall settled over it. Here, the family fades from oral memory, with a footnote that Don Pablo sold off his possessions and his properties and returned to his native city. Most likely, he recovered financially, but he'd left his daughter's bones behind in the shade of those cottonwoods. The house and the land it sat on passed from one owner to another but the house itself sat vacant, the land often unused except for grazing. As Trinidad grew and prospered, the little game trail along the stream widened with the increased traffic between town and the hills to the northwest. Occasionally a shepherd or vaquero would take shelter in the house, but many reported afterward that the place was haunted by the unhappy spirit of the murdered bride some people knew leonora's story well others only knew a few stray details and in time the story of her ghost took on that special patina of half-truth typical of folklore some said the groom had been untrue and that they'd fought about it on their wedding night others said she'd despaired when he revealed he'd married her not for love but for money they said her death was a suicide some said she'd been shot not stabbed. Others said she had drowned herself in the stream and had become like La Llorona. At night, you could hear her crying under the sound of the wind in the trees. They said you could see her standing in the doorway of the house, waiting for her lost love to return to her. They said she was angry about his deception, about the murder, that she was so angry she couldn't tell the difference between him and any other man. That she hated all men any man riding alone in the canyon at night put his life in her ghostly hands others said it was sorrow not rage that blinded her she was lonely and would swallow up a man in her ghostly embrace and kill him with fright and the chill of the grave these were the ghost stories the locals told about the canyon They used them to warn their sons and their daughters, to frighten them away from charming strangers, and to deflect talking about other dangers of riding out alone at night. Everyone around knew the canyon was haunted, and everyone knew some version of the story of why. Gregorio knew it, too. Had you forgotten about Gregorio, sitting there in the tent cantina, holding a winning hand of poker? He had spent plenty of time in the Trinidad area. He knew the story, and he thought it was very sad, but he wasn't afraid of the ghost. Now, I'm not comfortable saying that Gregorio didn't believe in the ghost. I've heard enough other stories about him to be certain he had a healthy respect for things he didn't understand. But I will say that, as part of his reputation for steady nerves, it was said he wasn't afraid of ghosts or evil spirits. There's another story about Gregorio and the local Bruja and a black dog that I might share another time that shows his supernatural worldview from a different angle. A Bruja is a witch, by the way, but the point is that when Gregorio told the other vaqueros that he wasn't worried about the ghost in the canyon, it's because he wasn't. It was nearly dark and there was a storm coming, but he set out. He was less than a mile down the trail when those dark clouds finally felt their own weight and burst. It was nearly summer, so more than anything Gregorio and his big horse Grandote found it refreshing. The rain washed down, widened the creek, and when it was spent the sky was clear, and in the light of the full moon the stream and the grasses and the trees shimmered like silver. It was a beautiful night. Gregorio descended the trail at an easy pace, singing to his horse. As the path curved into the wide hollow, the decades-old ruin of the murdered bride's house glowed in the pale blue light. And it was definitely a ruin. The whitewash had faded, and unevenly. The roof sagged. The front door, half the shutters, and most of the barn were missing, probably carried away as firewood. Where a cluster of wild roses stood beside the house, Gregorio thought he spied a solitary, slender white headstone at their center. He sighed to himself, thinking of what a beautiful night he'd have missed if he had been dissuaded by his friends. Then he noticed that where the trail dipped down onto the flat, a dead cottonwood had been uprooted by the storm and fallen across the path. He dismounted to lead Grandote around it. Remember, he wasn't anyone's idea of a tall man, so the world looked different from his own two feet than it did from the saddle. Once he was down on the ground, out of the corner of his eye, he thought he saw someone standing in the doorway of the house. Now, just someone standing in the doorway wouldn't have been too strange. It wasn't unheard of for shepherds or travelers to take shelter in the house during a storm or on a chilly night. Gregorio turned and looked directly across the meadow between his horse and the house. Sure enough, there was someone standing in the house, and it wasn't a shepherd boy, and it wasn't one of the other vaqueros who'd started out for Trinidad earlier that afternoon. Standing a little back from the empty doorway, near the rear of the front room of the house, Gregorio saw the form of a slender woman. She was wearing a white dress, There was movement in the room, but it was subtle, and in the moonlight and shadows, it was hard to see exactly what was going on. Gregorio wasn't afraid, but he was curious. There might be a real ghost only a few dozen yards away from him. Grandote wasn't spooked, so Gregorio left him to eat the sweet grass in the meadow. He walked quietly down toward the house, keeping his eye on that doorway. The hem of the woman's dress fluttered in the breeze. Senora, he called out. Hello. There was no response. He walked closer. Senora, I'm only coming closer to make sure you're all right. Do you hear me? Can you see me out here in the dark? The grass was wet with rain and he made no effort to silence his movements. Her dress moved in the breeze, but she stood in the same shadows behind the doorway, seemingly unaware of Gregorio's presence. He crept closer, a step at a time. An idea came to him, a very frontier cowboy kind of idea. Senora, he called out again, if you're really there, I believe you're dead. I think you're a ghost. But I don't know, because you won't answer me. So I'm going to shoot you, all right? I'd just like to make sure. If you're a ghost like they told me you are, it won't hurt you. He laughed a little because he thought he was funny, but also to let the ghost know that he was a good-natured guy. Still, she made no response as he unholstered his colt. Gregorio, the crack shot, took aim at her heart and fired. As the dust cleared from the scene before him, Gregorio witnessed a strange and unexpected thing. Where his bullet had entered the woman's breast, a dark spot appeared, a stain on the white of her dress. The dark spot began to spread. The ghost of the murdered bride appeared to bleed where Gregorio had shot her. What was going on? Gregorio was more intrigued than ever. Still holding his pistol, he hurried up to the open doorway towards the woman who still stood upright, shot through the chest but not falling to the floor. He got up to the door, and when the moonlight showed him what had happened, he laughed. The perspective was different this close up, a different set of angles. And he could also see exactly where all the holes in the roof were, letting in the bright moonlight on certain sections of the room and its walls. On the back wall, most, but not all, of the dirty white plaster had fallen away to reveal the dark adobe beneath, now even darker for being damp. The plaster that remained, at least from out in front of the house, had the vague shape of a young woman and was stained just so to suggest facial features, given the addition of dim light and imagination. The shifting dance of moonlight and shadows from the wind-rustled branches accounted for the movements of her skirt and sleeves. And the bleeding gunshot wound in her chest? The bullet had blown away that section of the plaster, and the creeping stain was the crumbling dark adobe underneath. That, uh, blood bloodstain spread as more bits of newly crumbled plaster fell to the ground. Gregorio took a quiet moment to stand by the overgrown grave behind the house to express his condolences to the young woman buried there. Then, both relieved and amused, he got back into the saddle, sang boleros to grandote the rest of the way into town, and he took a room in a downtown hotel where he enjoyed a hot, soapy bath and a solid night's sleep in a real bed. That's what he'd been daydreaming of since at least the day before. For several years, Gregorio said very little to very few people about that night in the canyon when he shot the imagined ghost of poor dead Leonora. In that time, the story of the haunted canyon changed slightly with rattled passers now reporting that the ghost sported bloodstains on her chest where her perfidious husband had delivered the fatal blows. Gregorio felt a little bit smug about his part in the change to the story, and after a few years, he broke down and shared it. Some people believed him, while others insisted the ghost was real, and they had stories of their own to prove it. None of that changed what had happened to the woman, Her tragedy was real, and the dangers her story illustrated were real. But the vision of her ghostly apparition was nothing more than her abandoned home plus the power of suggestion. Time passed, and the house crumbled to the ground, and both the story and the haunting attached to it faded from memory. Maybe that adds to the sadness of it all. Some of the stories I'll be telling on this podcast are well-rooted in the historical record, with dates, documents, even photographs. Others, like the ones I've just shared, rely on oral traditions, in this case, family stories and local folklore. Sometimes that's as good as the source material gets. The trappers and traders who used the Santa Fe Trail were highly mobile, and so they shared news by couriers and word of mouth, as did later Hispano and Mexican settlers. The city of Trinidad wasn't incorporated until 1862 after the discovery of rich coal deposits in the area. Coal money spurred development, but no newspapers were established, either in Spanish or English, until the 1870s. Before that, sterile, non-narrative parish documents were often the only formal record of births, marriages, or deaths in the Hispano communities and any mystery or tragedy that befell a person or a family was preserved primarily in oral tradition. Even if Leonora was killed in the 1880s or the 1890s, it may not have made the paper. As far as the written record is concerned, her breath may have passed out of this world with only a few scratches of a priest's plume to take note of it. I called her Leonora, but remember that in reality we don't know the woman's name in order to even search for it. Understand, then, that this story, devoid of supporting documentation, had passed into the realm of folklore within a decade or two of its happening, if it happened. The ruins of a house in a canyon northwest of town are all that stood to support it. And yet, the story was passed down. People kept telling it. People believed it had happened because it was believable. It was an important story because it had something to tell about making poor decisions, about whom to trust. On nights when the wind blew a little too hard or too cold, the story frightened people. The possibility of it frightened them. On the frontier, so many possibilities could go awry, sometimes horribly so. This ghost and her tragedy served as a reminder, and parents held their daughters a little closer. Blessedly, 21st century gender roles are less strict, and young women have a greater say in their own futures. The downside is that stranger danger is a dating pitfall all around for men and women. We all know someone who's been catfished, and we've all heard dating app horror stories. You may have a few of your own. Only a few, I hope. We share these stories, too. They're good for a laugh, yes, but they are, at their core, cautionary tales. We still tell our daughters and our sons, our friends, our siblings, to beware the stranger who seems too good to be true. And we often tell it with the voice of our own experience. Today's two stories, the tale of murdered Leonora and the story of Gregorio the Ghostbuster, might seem at odds. Leonora and her father flouted good counsel, and it ended for them in the worst possible way. Gregorio, on the other hand, bypassed the advice of his friends, and came out of it with an even bigger reputation for his nerves of steel, and with a good story to tell. It doesn't make sense to ask for consistency from folklore, but in this case, I think it's there, and it's why I've chosen to keep these two stories together. Both stories are about trusting your gut. I think that's why my grandmother and my father always shared them as a pair. Leonora and her family didn't trust their intuition, and you see how that went. Gregorio, on the other hand, calmly and confidently went with what his gut told him was the reasonable option, and he was fine. Better than fine. Leonora was what we call cabezuda, boneheaded, headstrong. She knew what she wanted, but perhaps without knowing her own mind. Gregorio, though, was quietly confident. I submit to you that these paired stories are about finding the sometimes subtle distinction between those ways of making up your mind. And that, friends, is the story of the bride's bleeding heart. You've been listening to Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and I hope you've enjoyed today's tales. The next episode is about road tripping and road hazards in the Southwest. It'll go live in two weeks, but keep your ear to the ground for a short bonus episode in the next few days. You can always find episodes and other information at southwestgothic.com, on our Facebook page, Southwest Gothic Podcast, or on our Instagram account, southwest.gothic. Once again, thanks for listening.